You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. If you had a chance to jump on Skyline, you may have had time to look at the artwork featured at the stations. The designs on the station columns are supposed to reflect stories of a sense of place tied to the names of the 21 stations. But we noticed the signs explaining that sense of place were missing. Hard to believe, but Hart kicked off the call to artists in the process of selecting the designs and names in 2013. It's a decade ago. We talked to the architecture firm hired to create the column designs. WCIT Senior Vice President Dan Kanikuni jokingly said he was hired so long ago it was hard to remember some of the details. Ten years is a long time. But he's happy that people will be able to better appreciate what the company tried to achieve in showcasing the history of the area. There are images of pre-contact times and post-contact stories around the sense of place, from the divisions of land, the Ahupua'a, to breadfruit or ulu at Ho'opili, or to the hula dancers at the Halava station. Here is uh, Kanikuni explaining the work that went into the column designs. You know, it kind of fit the narrative of, of the column of being kind of circular. There was a, a beginning of the makahiki with the planting and the harvesting, and there was the end of it when they celebrated. And part of the celebration was sports and competition. So you know, that was sort of the connection to Aloha Stadium and, you know, the activities over there. And then part of the celebration was, you know, the Makahiki Festival, including, you know, hula and, you know, bowling and that kind of thing. So that's that's where some of the images came out from. Well, I was delighted to see the artwork up close because, you know, this thing has been, you know, how long in the making and driving by, you can see some of the columns. But, you know, right. you're driving by, you're going by fast. So it was really <laughs> nice to just sit there or stand there and walk around the column and really appreciate the thought that went into it. Oh, great. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, you know, trying to tell a story in basically four segments. Right? But even as you're driving by, we've turned the, the columns a little, uh, each one, so that, you know, you, you would be, by the time you, <laughs> you are driving fast, but by the time you pass the station, you should have, you should be able to see all four sides of the column. Well, talk about this idea of designing for a sense of place, because uh, the designs are are special and only at the rail stations. So each station, we tried to make it so that wherever the, the station was located, and you know, out in couple is, and as you head toward in town, there's, there's enough space so that each station kind of was in its own arbois, its own kind of land division. And then within that space was either legends or stories or at least bullet points that we could take from. So we did a ton of research for each station. So trying to take all that and it's just sort of, you know, going through all the images, kind of sifting through, well, like, what's really the essence of this place and what can we show graphically that would show the best? That was sort of the the, the things that would go through and then try and um, come up so that they'd be, how can I put this, kind of continuous, right? sort of seamless from one image to the next, not just horizontally, but then also vertically. So that you'd see sort of, there are three very distinctive layers or papas that we that we created. We were trying to make it so that they blend, right? We understand that there is going to be signage that will come uh-huh. up eventually. You know, uh-huh. we're still waiting on information about when exactly that will materialize. <laughs> but I'm told that it's on the website. They did run stories uh, about each station, you know, the week of the grand opening. Oh, yeah, right. But people see the the artwork and the designs and want to know more. So hopefully oh. they'll get those signs up sooner than later. I, I hope so. Yeah, for like, I think for the, you mentioned the ulu trees at Ho'opili, but yeah, that was kind of, um, one of the stories was uh, Kahai planting the first ulu tree at Uloa. So that's sort of that image that we depicted for that. So if there was a story that we could tell that included the whole column, but many times it's kind of difficult, right, to just to show it in four. So sometimes there's just almost like bullet points on each one. So like for Ho'opili, that was one of the one of the uh, images. Another was the Va'a sails. It's kind of the depicting the voice, the voyage of Kahi, and then of the Ulu brought, being brought from Tahiti, and that kind of translates into Kahi planting the first Ulu tree. Well, can you talk about the process? You know, because how do you actually create these things? You know, you made the designs. Oh, 
but it's a little tricky, right? I mean, I don't know if this is something you just get off the shelf. You know, you're not like you're wrapping vinyl around a a wall. You mean the, like the actual construction of it? Yeah. So they looked at different um, methods of when we first started. Like, how can we how can we include art, right? And we looked at maybe kind of skinning it with metal, maybe doing some screens. But then, you know, then we looked at something that what's what's going to be relatively maintenance free. Like something that's embossed as actually a part of the column rather than something that's added on or will need to be maintained and changed and painted. So we looked at like formwork, right? So something that can that can be embossed in the concrete as part of the forms as they come up. So it's made out of super hard rubber. You've got to be able to take it off. Part of it was just constructability, right? The four images was so that there'd be four, basically four forms that you could take out. So each quarter, you'd be able to be able to release off of the, the concrete to create the forms. So that needed to be created. And before that needed to be created, we had to do the design. And then we did the um, CAD drawing. And then with the CAD drawings, they were able to create the forms. And then on the forms, if if you look closely, there's basically three levels that we, can, we could use. We could go half an inch, an inch, and an inch and a half. So with with that, being able to do three depths that allowed us to kind of be slightly more detailed. Generally, the, the designs are like block designs, right? They're in concrete, so we couldn't get super fine details. But with the, with the three or four different levels, we were able to create a little bit of design, a little bit of detail uh, within the former. Well, do you so have that a f- really helped a lot with shadows and some of the textures and stuff. Do you have a favorite? For some reason, we started in Westlock, and I live in Westlock, so we didn't we didn't start from like Kapolei and then work our way. We just, for some reason, we were given Westlock first. I don't know, I, I'm not sure why. So I remember that, and that's that's one of the few columns that actually told the whole story. It told of a voyage from uh, Westlock to Leeward, picking up some sweet potato and bringing it back, and along the way, uh, they threw the potato leaves in, and the uh, the mullet would follow them back, right? So that was one of the few stations with that column that a column tells a, a complete story. Interesting. And then now uh, I understand that, you know, when this first was out to bid, you know, you were with that first group that got uh-huh. the first segment. But there was some concern about unity, right, just to make sure that there Correct. was a theme right. for the other half of the stations. I could totally understand. Like, cause so we did the uh, up to a low stadium, and I think I think Kiwit didn't want to continue right after that so they had to get someone else so anyway so then Hart came back to us and said you know can we just finish the remainder of it from a low stadium to Alamoana so that's how we were able to continue with the with the columns for us have you gotten any feedback now that people are seeing it more I've I've only heard positive I'm I'm really proud for us and just for the company that we've been able to do something that kind of reflects where we live and that was Dan Kanikuni, Senior Vice President at WCIT, the architecture firm hired to create the designs on the rail columns that represent a sense of place at the 21 stations. We asked Hart why the signs weren't in place by the opening. We were told no one dropped the ball, but that the contract went out in April of 2022 and that DTL, the company charged with the signage, submitted content that is just now currently under review. Hart says it hopes to have signs for those first nine stations in hopefully by the end of the year. However, Hart notes, you can go online to see some of the stories behind the station names and sense of place. And during opening week, info was featured in the Star Advertiser. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Today we're thinking about a collection of family restaurants that once thrived in Hawaii. It began with a hot dog stand on Inner Road in Waikiki called Swanky Frankie. 
Uh, it then turned into a collection of family-style restaurants that grew rapidly to 50 locations at its peak. The company was the brainchild of two brothers who came to Hawaii in the 1930s and who worked at Pearl, uh, the Pearl Harbor Shipyard. The two men were sons of a noted architect, Fullerton Weaver, who designed such New York City landmarks as the Waldorf Astoria and the Hotel Pierre. The company's name, a composite of the brothers' first names, was also the name of the family's Long Island estate. As the company grew, the brothers acquired such properties as Queen Surf, where the Barefoot Bar became a local entertainment landmark, and the Sky Room atop the airport terminal at the John Rogers Field. For today's quiz, who were these intrepid brothers and what was the name of their family of restaurants? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. We look at over-tourism and the curse of the cruise ship. The footprint of hundreds of visitors overrunning a small place is a reality that is generating pushback from local communities across the globe. Today, we look at a situation on the Big Island and how the community is being asked about how they think the numbers could be better managed. HPR reporter Aku Vehirishi joins us this morning. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, we are going going to the Keokaha community, the coastal community in Hilo, Alehia native, Ainaloha Iwane's family has been coming to Waiuli Beach Park, or uh, also known as Richardson's, which we might be familiar with, for generations. And she says uh, the increase in visitors at Waiuli in the last decade or so has been uh, not only noticeable, but sort of unavoidable. Uh, Iwane would notice visitors venturing along sort of dangerous sections of the shoreline for folks familiar with Keokaha. We don't have those beautiful white sandy beaches. It's mm-hmm. Lava Rock coastline. And uh, she also shared stories of tourists um, once they get to the beach, sort of taking pictures of her and her and her family swimming and enjoying the beach. Ioana uh, described it as uh, extractive behavior that's begun to make her feel a little uncomfortable. They look like they're kneeling the space. And, <laughs> and so the reason that it began to make me and the community and my ohana uncomfortable is that when we come to our our beaches, we have a, an understanding of aloha aina. I mean, we aloha our aina and the space that we're in. And when we're swimming, we're enjoying yeah. the kai. We are, we are looking at our ia so that we become you know, more connected to them. When we lay our hali'i and enjoy the wind and enjoy the space, that's us alohaing our aina. And when you see that the tourists come and you can automatically see that there isn't that same type of relationship, you know, I'm uncomfortable. Iwan uh, is the community lead for this new Keokaha Stewardship Pilot Program, and part of uh, the goal there is tourism education, visitor education on the cultural significance of the area, but also porno behaviors uh, when it comes to, uh, and safe behaviors when it comes to being in this space. Uh, this past Tuesday, when we were down at Waiuli, the stewards there tallied more than a thousand beachgoers, and more uh, than half of whom were tourists. So they say it's the ha- second highest beach visitation record to date. Uh, Keokaha resident Susan Champany runs lead on data for the stewardship program. She says the visibility of tourism's impact on Waiuli Beach was even more noticeable following the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions, which is when she started counting. 
I started with this project back in 2022 when the first cruise ship came on January 11, and we suddenly had five big tour buses and 250 people dropped on the beach one hour after the cruise ship landed. I was here, I saw it, and the whole neighborhood is like, what the heck is going on? Part of the community association said, well, let's find out how many people are gonna to come today. And we started counting. 600 tourists later, <laughs> in less than six hours, we knew we had a big problem on our hands. And you know, I know you're from Hilo. I am not, but explain oh, yeah. to our listeners, you know, where this is. Perfect so relation, you know. Good. To town. Yeah, Keokaha is. Uh, let's see if everybody's familiar with Ken's Pancake House or where <laughs> yes. the cruise ships come in at the port of Hilo, right next to the Hilo Airport. You're actually flying in past Keokaha, and so it sort of ends. There's only one way in and one way out in Keokaha, and at the end of that paved road, Kalaniano Ole Avenue, on the left is Vaiuli Beach Park or Richardson's, and it's about five acres in total but you've got a number of fish ponds that kind of take up a lot of the space and a few a limited um, uh, swimming areas and so you know even more so needing that safety component of education for uh, tourists that are coming by is, is what this stewardship uh, program is looking to do so they came up with this program, which will cost uh, the county and HTA about $90,000 in this pilot phase. And the focus is to really gather additional data and continue what they're doing and really identify the impacts of tourism on the community. And the, the next step, Ioane says, is to have those community discussions about these impacts and come up with recommendations that the county can really implement to help manage tourism in their community. And these are going to be tough conversations. You know, Keokaha is home to some of the most popular beaches in town, but it also bears the brunt of Hilo's infrastructure. So this is, you know, the nearby airport runways. You've got Hilo's only sewage treatment plant in Keokaha, the adjacent industrial area, and, of course, that busy shipping port. And for Iowane, who was born and raised in Lehia, which is sort of an off-the-grid community at the end, past the paved Kalaniyanole Avenue, uh, an area known also as King's Landing. She's beginning to see the tourism spillover effect in Lehia, and you can hear the frustration in her voice. The community does not want to accept tourism. And at this point, what we're trying to do is manage it. I don't, and I, I'm speaking for me. I do not want to accept tourists at Lehia. I feel like I don't want to share. And, and, and it's not on a selfish standpoint. It comes from we have to share everything. We are expected to give and to give and to give. Give our hula, give our olelo, however you wish to use it in your aloha burger or your something poke. We're expected to give everything that makes us who we are as Poe Hawaii and makes us who we are as residents of Hawaii. That at this point, I want to say no. No more giving, no more taking. Our spaces are for us. And I get really uncomfortable when I see tourists coming into Lehia because I'm not Makoko to share it. Wow. Yeah, this is tough words. And then this growing frustration in, in communities across Hawaii are, you know, often reflected in uh, the Hawaii Tourism Authority's resident sentiment survey, which we see come out every year. HTA has been placing a greater emphasis on this idea of regenerative tourism and uh, combating that sort of extractive force and, and community-led destination management. So Keokaha was identified as a tourism hotspot in the Hawaii County's Tourism Strategic Plan as well as HTA's Hawaii Island Destination Management Action Plan, or DMAP. Last year, we brought in 9 million visitors to Hawaii, and, and Ilya Johnson, public affairs officer at HTA, says, you know, when we're talking about destination management, the focus may be the big picture of 9 million visitors, but when we look at the specific issues facing communities, the focus is on these nine visitors. Ali pili kela helu nui, oka eva miliona. Pili ka eva. Pili na malihini eva... We're talking about the nine visitors who don't know how to properly observe our honu, Hawaiian sea turtles, uh, the nine visitors who don't know where to properly park their car, or the nine visitors who sort of venture past that chain lick fence that says, keep up. And Johnson says, you know, every community in Hawaii experiences these nine visitors differently. 
So when we create destination management programs like this stewardship program in Kilkaha, they'll look differently uh, for each community. Uh, HTA is fine-tuning a program for East Maui that's in the works and might be uh, laid out, uh, rolled out soon. Hawaii County is also working to bring this pilot program to other communities on island, including Waipio Valley, uh, which we've heard of, and Pohuiki, just to name a few. Yeah, and HGA, you know, has come under fire because they were saying, well, they aren't doing enough to manage. And they did roll out these maps, you right. know, and try to get the community, you know, exactly. sentiment input. And, and, you know, they've got dashboards up to try and get a sense of, you know, who's going where. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's exactly what Kilka is trying to do. They've been sort of doing it on their own. So, you know, I, they were at their clipboard. You'll see them if you ever go to Richardson's clipboard tent and just counting people as they come in. Now they'll have a bit more resources to um, take that next step and figure out what they can do about those impacts. Yeah, I mean, they're doing things, you know, by checking people's phones, you know, where you're at. And I thought it was interesting in Kailua where they said a lot of the crowds at Kailua are folks from here, you know. So, I mean, it it does present a different picture. You can't assume it's all the tourists that are overrunning your town or your favorite spot. So Exactly. Uh, the, the, The idea is that we get good information. That's yeah. right. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have been hearing from HBR's Kuvehiraishi. You can read her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have been taking a hard look at who is being held at the Hilo Jailhouse. The story by reporter Kevin Dayton features a second case where a person has been held behind bars for years while experts debate whether or not the defendant is sane enough to stand trial. Editor Chad Blair is on the line with us. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so, you know, we had talked about an earlier uh, story that uh, uh, Kevin did, uh, and but this one, now a second case. Yeah, it was just, gosh, I think it was me actually doing the report just, what, a couple of weeks ago with mm-hmm. you, and that was the case of John Ali Hoffman. He's been held uh, at the, the Hilo Jail, the, the Hawaii Community Correctional Center, um, for seven years now. If you'll recall, uh, he's accused of killing his wife, his two children, and at issue there is mental health evaluations. They can't seem to uh, satisfactorily determine whether Mr. Hoffman is fit to stand trial. Well, here's another case eerily similar. It is, in fact, at the same facility, the Hilo Jail. And Kevin, this time, it's our lead story today, is reporting on a 65-year-old woman. and Her name is Henrietta Stone. She's been uh, at the Hilo Jail since 2017. She's accused of the death um, of her nine-year-old granddaughter. But it's the same thing. Uh, Mental health evaluations keep being called. The case keeps getting delayed, pushed back, uh, and yet uh, no resolution appears to be in sight for either of these cases. Yeah, and the crimes involved in these cases are are terrible cases. You know, people have lost their lives, and, and it's so it's heartbreaking because uh, you want to, you know, have justice served, uh, but then at the same time, like, when is a jailhouse not a jailhouse? Well, it, when you have people in there for years, it seems. Right, and as we long have reported, and I think we'll continue to report, the overcrowded conditions uh, at our jails and prisons, as we know, so much so that we send folks to Arizona to be incarcerated. Uh, and uh, then, there, of course, there's the argument that you should have the right to a speedy trial, right? This is not exactly speedy. But here's the challenge with the mental health issues. It, it is a way to uh, delay to find out whether someone is fit to stand trial. The problem with the Hilo jail, there's no mental health module. I mean, you really shouldn't be in there. Ideally, I suppose you'd be at the Hawaii State Hospital in Oahu. Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. I should also mention, you, you mentioned heinous crimes. And in this case, we don't know whether Henrietta Stone did this or not. We do know that Shailene Lehano Stone, the granddaughter, an autop- autopsy determined that she was starved to death and that it appears it was through abuse, through neglect. Uh, she was intentionally withheld food. Her parents uh, did actually end up uh, being convicted of manslaughter and, and they have done their time. But here you have this case with, with the grandmother still on hold um, and uh, you know, no justice yet has been served. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is heartbreaking. Uh, and and I, I'm just wondering, like, why don't they send these defendants to Honolulu, where we have a facility here, at least until this is debated? Right, decided. of course, as you know, this, yeah, the history of our Hawaii State Hospital hasn't always been so good either, although it's now a, a new facility and, and m- much more secure than it used to be. There's a couple things that, that Kevin also reported on, which is fascinating. Uh, both of these people, uh, Hoffman and Stone, have the same attorney, uh, uh, Stanton Oshiro. Both of these um, people that are being accused of murder uh, are also are under the same judge, Henry Naka. Moto and, and it makes you kind of wonder. Uh, Oshiro did not comment, did not return Kevin's calls. Uh, and in terms of the Nakamoto, Judge Nakamoto, the judiciary says, look, a, a judge cannot talk about a case while it's pending. But we do have other people talking, including the ACLU of Hawaii, who's saying, look, you really need to resolve this. Uh, a former city county prosecutor also took Kevin the same, not only because of the overcrowding. It wasn't all that long ago you had folks uh, in the legal community saying, look, if they're nonviolent offenders, why don't you release them? Because uh, the conditions in many of these facilities are atrocious, and that's coming from uh, touring, actually, the facilities. And so a lot of things at play here. Yeah, uh, but but is distressing, you know, just the length of time and the, the, the number, I guess, of hearings that have been continued. Right. And, you know, the court documents in this particular case, most of them are sealed. You really can't find out much. Kevin did manage to learn uh, one mental health evaluation in terms of Miss Stone uh, determined that she was unfit. Another one, however, contradicted that and said, no, that's not the case. It's made the ACLU suggest, you know, why don't we analyze the data on these things? See if we can find some trends and find some openings uh, to help resolve this. One other thing uh, in terms of uh, this particular case, which was most recently delayed in February, it looks like there may be a hearing coming next month. Who knows? A plea deal could be in the works. We'll find out. But I'm sure Kevin Dayton, who covers uh, the jails and prisons, uh, and good thing, too, for Civil Beat, uh, will have an update for us. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Chad. A uh, really uh, interesting story that you folks have been able to you know, pull the curtain uh, aside uh, for us to, to see what's going on. But thank you. Of course. Sure thing. That was editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Uh, You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. does being Asian in America mean right now, and what does it mean in a historical timeline? Well, curtains go up tonight at Manoa Valley Theater with the spotlight on the complex history of the Chinese in the U.S. and a story inspired by the true life events of Afong Moi, the first Chinese woman in America. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with director Reiko Ho to talk about Lloyd Tse's The Chinese Lady, a dark but whimsical portrait of America seen through Moi's eyes. It is history through her eyes. And she was brought to America as part of a basically a sideshow. And so she had to eat with chopsticks and walk on her bound feet for audiences who paid 25 cents to see her. And eventually, and that was for Peel's Museum, and eventually she was bought by Barnum and Bailey and then replaced. So she was in this sideshow for decades. Started her career, though, with Peels at the tender age of 16? 14. 14. So in 1834, this is actually historic. She was brought at 14 years old, and and I just love how Lloyd's uh, 
starts this character so full of hope and boundless energy and effervescence because she really feels like she gets to share her culture with the world and and then she's broken eventually, you know, as time goes on. And we get to see some of the complex and difficult history of Chinese Americans through her eyes. In that historical timeline, you're talking about the Exclusion Act. We're yes, talking about Transcontinental this- Railroad. Yep, the Exclusion Act, which, you know, eventually gets widened to include all Asians, basically, mm-hmm. and only got abolished in what, 1943. So, she sees very little men. She sees very little historically because she's part of this sideshow and she travels with her translator. But she gets really famous for a little bit as a sideshow. Mm. Um, and she even gets to meet the president and it's dramatized on stage, her meeting with um, Andrew Jackson. Right. So she is like a, a beautiful, gilded creature kept in this cage for the amusement of her owners. Yes, and actually my concept for the look, so there's basically what I call three characters in the play. It is Afong Moi, her translator Atong, and the room. And she lives in this room, and it gets broken down and sent to another city, and you know she stays in this room for her entire existence, decades of time. So my concept for the room is that it is a cage, so you're going to get to see a beautiful set that is based on a Chinese bird cage that can be moved. So you really feel like she's part of the exhibition, and I'm hoping that the audiences feel like that too. Mm. I think it will resonate with every Asian American, and especially Chinese Americans. Certainly it resonated with the entire cast and our production team. All of us in the rehearsal room, the cast is all Chinese or part Chinese. My assistant director is part Chinese, and I am part Chinese. And so we really reveled in in learning about our culture, talking with each other about our experiences as Chinese Americans in a way that we've never been able to do so before. Mm. And with your cast, it's a smaller cast. It is a smaller cast. Tell me who are the principals. So we have two actors that will be alternating the role of Afong Moi. And we have Alvin Chan playing Atong. The two Chinese ladies are Diana Wan and Jennifer Sterley. And they both brought such different perspectives during auditions that it was my choice to use both of them to expand our ideas of what it means to be Chinese American and what they were going to bring to the part. By casting the two actresses for the Chinese lady, they bring their own experiences as Asian Americans to the role. Why was it that it made such an impression that you wanted to cast these two actresses? I think it's really specific to this Hawaii version because I was privileged to direct a regional premiere of it in Florida earlier this year. But in Hawaii, there are so many different Asians from so many different backgrounds, and some of us here for generations from plantation times, and others of us newly arrived, you know, like the Chinese lady. And so these members of the cast, they all bring that. All of them have a very different Asian American experience. Some of their parents are from plantations. Some are from China. Our assistant director, she grew up on the continent, so she brings the continent experience of being Chinese and what that felt like to her, being very, very other. In Hawaii, we're not so much the other, but we do have such a varied experience. And Hawaii is part of this whole manifest destiny. Occupation is part of that, which is covered in the play. So I think Hawaii audiences are will feel very connected to what is going on. And maybe I hope their eyes open to some of the wider history that unfortunately doesn't get taught in classrooms. Mm, Right. The stage play, though, will span from when she's 14 to when she's 44 and replaced? And beyond, right? It goes from when she's 14 to 44. That is historic, and that's the last time we ever hear of her in history. And then Lloyd Sook continues the story forward, and we get to hear what I call the litany of atrocities, where we get to see from her eyes the massacres, the gold rush, the, you know, the transcontinental railroad being really created on the bones of Chinese workers. And, and then Hawaii. We had this beautiful conversation about what that meant. You know, what does Manifest Destiny mean to Hawaii and how Hawaii was basically taken and, and then occupied by this whole movement. And that 
was very eye-opening. You know, these are historical facts, but let's think about it in our context. And all of these musings are what we are bringing to the performance. Mm. So the anger that the actor is expressing when talking about Manifest Destiny and how she's understanding it, it's the Hawaiian feeling. You know, it's, it's our feeling from being here in Hawaii and how we feel about that and how she feels about being an Asian American whose family was brought as slave labor in the plantation times. So she's bringing some of that anger and systemic trauma to her performance. And it's so beautiful. And what a unique opportunity to bring your own experience on stage with you instead of just trying to create another character. Right. It is deeply personal. It's also, we do live in different times. So this piece, The Chinese Lady, based in history, but nowadays we hear people talking about generational trauma. We talk about, you know, these concepts of being the model minority, things that I guess in the past we you don't talk about. Yep. But, but nowadays it has come to the point where it needs to be talked about. Absolutely. And I think after the pandemic and the death of George Floyd and the rise of anti-Asian hate, that movement, and just that Asian hate continues, but actually that has been going on since Asians have arrived in America is so very, very important. And I just, you know, I was, we even talked about the killings in Atlanta during the course of our rehearsals and what that felt like. And because that's part of what white society thinks of the Asian female. Fetishization, exploitation, all of these are themes that are explored within this play. It, it is heavy, but the other fun thing about it is it's really comical and funny. It is done with this very dry, wry sense of humor. I think audiences are going to laugh much more than they think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then be heartbroken at the same time as they watch this. And then that heartbreak will resonate with them. And that is what theater is meant to do. Absolutely. So for you, Reiko, you actually were able to also do The Chinese Lady in Florida. <laughs> yes. So what's the main difference between Florida and Hawaii to do The Chinese Lady? Is there a big difference? or Actually, yes. The first one I want to say is audience. So the audience in Florida is predominantly white. There was maybe one or two Asian people in the audience. Okay. And I left after the opening weekend, and the stage manager would report, oh, we had an Asian family this weekend. <laughs> you know, and then everybody else wasn't Asian. Right. So I did have people that first weekend that walked up to me, and some of them apologized. And I'm like, oh, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to apologize to me. You know, they were like, I'm so sorry we did that to your people. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm joking about it, but I think eye-opening. It's also a beautifully crafted play. So my whole goal is, you know, I'm going to show them this magnificent, beautiful play written, very modern play. It was, it was written in 2017, so it's very new. It's one of the most produced shows of the 2022-23 season. I think it's like the fifth most produced show. So there's been many productions of The Chinese Lady over this last season and by a, a playwright that they should know about, Asian-American playwright. They're getting all these things, and I want to craft something that is beautiful. So they walk away having this amazing theatrical experience, but then also being transformed mm -hmm. by somebody else's story, because storytelling creates empathy, as we know, right? And that's why we go to see theater. We want to be transported and transformed. Lloyd uh, takes us further than the actual historical references of Afong Moi. And at the end of the play, we see this very meta version of the actor. It's the actor playing Afong Moi. And she says, and it is the year 2023, and I am 203 years old. Can you see me? And it's an invitation for the audience to finally truly connect and see and maybe just maybe this time we actually can see each other that was director reiko ho and hbr's lillian song talking about 
The Chinese Lady, a stage production of Afang Moi's journey from China to America. Lloyd says play opens tonight at Manoa Valley Theater and runs through July 30th. Details on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. like rocket launches are a daily occurrence these days. So much so, in fact, that there are tourism industries popping up around viewing at the world's busiest spaceports. I mean, we got one of the best viewing areas for the rockets. So um, we have a lot of customers that come just to see the rockets. I'm Kai Rizdal. Tourism dollars coming soon to a space town near you. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at waikoloabeachresort.com. We are here because Waipio cannot speak for itself. On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, hear how a sacred valley became a battleground over public access rights, ownership, and a fundamental sense of belonging. You think I wanted to be at the forefront of being pitted against Hawaiians? But I was forced to be in this position, and I'm doing it because of how much I care and how much I love this place. Available tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. it's time to come together for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. We were looking for the name of a popular restaurant chain that once thrived in Hawaii. It was the brainchild of two ambitious brothers who came to the islands in the years before World War II to seek their fortune. They found it, or at least the seeds of a fortune, in a hot dog joint called Swanky Frankie's on Inner Road in Waikiki. Eventually, some 50 restaurants came under their banner, and if you took the family out to uh, dinner any time between uh, 1945 and the early 80s, you probably ate in one. Kelly's Drive-In was part of the chain, as were Coco's, the Barefoot Bar at Queen Surf, Tahitian Lanai, Trader Vic's, and Fisherman's Wharf. The name of the parent company that oversaw the restaurants was a composite of the brothers' first names, Spencer and Clifton, hence the Spence Cliff family of restaurants. We had no winners today. We stumped you on that one. But boy, that brings back memories of their buffets. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea to share, write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Hawaii students were recently named finalists in NPR's 2023 Student Podcast Challenge. Emma Forges and Brenna Colmenares will be 8th graders at Highland Intermediate School in Pearl City in the fall. Their podcast highlighted the Hawaii Innocence Project and former inmate uh, Ian Schweitzer, who was freed this past January after nearly 25 years in prison. Here's a clip. So he went in when he was in his mid-20s. He spent all of his 30s in prison. He spent all of his 40s in prison. He's 51 years old now. He doesn't know how to use an iPhone because an iPhone wasn't invented when he went to prison. Right? He doesn't know how to use the internet. Right? Um, and so how does he start over again? In the US, two to 10% of people who are currently in prison don't deserve to be there. Well. The Hawaii Innocence Project secures the rights for people who are wrongly incarcerated. Co-director Kenneth Lawson has more to say about this. Uh, my name is Kenneth Lawson. I'm the co-director of the Hawaii Innocence Project. Well, we represent people who were wrongfully convicted in prison, but they're actually innocent 
uh, of the crime for which they're doing time for. And so we use DNA evidence and other evidence to try to gain their freedom. We have a, a, a worldwide network where we represent people who are in prison for crimes they just didn't commit. Sometimes our system gets it wrong, right? So we live in a system to where everybody believes that, that our jury system, and it is, it's, it's probably one of the best in, in the world, but it still makes mistakes. And so DNA has shown us since 1993. When I talk about DNA, DNA is where uh, we can prove in a rape or a murder, like in our, our case with Ian Schweitzer that just happened. He spent 25 years in prison, almost 25 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. What was, we freed him because of the DNA. And so since 1993, since the Innocence Projects has started throughout the United States, uh, over 300 people that have been locked up have been freed through DNA testing. We believe, we believe in a non-biased, non-racially sexist, biased uh, system um, where innocent people should not be in prison for crimes they didn't commit. So the value is just caring for one another, is it not? Like caring enough to go visit people that have been forgotten about who've been claiming for years that they're innocent. The value in what we do is helping reunite families that have been torn apart by a mistake. Forges and Colmenares were the only finalists from Hawaii among a field of students from 12 other middle schools in big cities like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. They told the Conversations Russell Subiano that they're not regular podcast listeners and they weren't even aware of NPR or HPR prior to the challenge. In fact, they said they found out about it from their uh, seventh grade social studies teacher, Kelly Kajiwara, who encouraged them to enter this challenge. Here's Fortis in uh, Colmenares talking about the experience. So how did this come about? Did she approach you guys or was this something that you guys wanted to do and, and you approached her? So she was like, there's a challenge for podcasts and I want you guys to enter it like our whole seventh grade had to do it. I didn't have to, but um, she said, oh, yeah, other people can help you. If they're not a part of our class, they can still help you. So she just asked me to help her. So Mrs. Kajiwara came to you. Yes. And then and then you asked Brenna to be on the podcast with you. Yes. OK. And how, ex <laughs> Brenna, how excited were you or like or, or was it did it like come out of the blue? Um, I've never heard about like any contests or anything, yeah. but um, I'm in media with her, like videos and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we had like some ideas. She would need help with the script. That's all I did, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am curious about what the division of labor was like. So what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so when it came to production, was somebody the lead, or or did somebody do on mic, or somebody behind the mic? What, I... what was how did that work out? She did the interviews, and then I did the, the speaking. Oh, okay. So, Brenda, you did the interviews. You actually talked to the people that are in your podcast. I talked to one person, okay. but on the other person, I wasn't able to go. Because we had interviewed them before for, like, a media project. Yeah, okay. like a challenge. And um, we didn't win, but we had the interview still, and we thought it would be a good story. Oh, okay. And how did that go for you? When you're interviewing somebody, is it pretty natural for you? Is that something that you do pretty well? Or, or was it kind of a learning experience? It was like maybe my third time interviewing someone. Yeah. So not great, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was good enough to be part of a podcast challenge though, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then Emma, you, you said that you did the narration. Yes. Okay. And how did you feel about that? Did you write the script? I wrote the script and then Brenna helped me. When you get on the mic, does it feel natural to you? Yeah, somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> we do. <laughs> I mean, when I see a mic, I, I got to get on it. Like, I can't hold a mic in my hand and not talk into it. Some people, I think, are just naturals on the mic and, and some people may be a little bit timid before getting on the mic. Brenna, what's your feeling? Do you do you like to talk on the mic? Um, I'm more of like an editor person. I don't really, I'm not good on camera. Okay, so like behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And then Emma, you you want to be on the mic? Not always. Yeah. I like to do a little bit of everything. Okay. But I'm usually the one who gets pushed to be on the mic. <laughs> <laughs> 
your podcast focuses on the Innocence Project Hawaii. Whose idea was it to focus on that story? My idea. Yours? Yeah. And tell me, tell me about why. Tell me about what was interesting about it to you. Well, one of the main reasons why we did it was because we already had like our media project. But then another reason why I wanted to do it was because it was really interesting how they're developing a system like that. So when we talk about the Innocence Project, it's it's an organization that helps prisoners or people that are accused of crime to exonerate themselves through DNA and, and other technology. Is that accurate? Yeah. And so was there something about that idea of you know fighting for a, an innocent person or doing work on behalf of an, an innocent person that kind of resonated with you? Yeah. How did you guys come across the Innocence Project? We heard about Ian Schweitzer being free from the news. And then we just wanted to do a story about that. So we just reached out to like some of the main people. I think a lot of people, they know that students study certain subjects, math, you know, English, science, whatever it might be. This podcast project seems like something that's kind of like out on the outside of what traditional curriculum at school is made up of, were you able to learn something in a different way because the project is different? Well, it's like a different way of teaching stuff. And I think it's very creative and it was very fun. What do you think, Emma? Yeah, yeah. I agree. You like can express your creativity and then and then it's like really different from regular book learning because you get to record stuff and speak or reach out to different people and learn about more different things because you got to kind of choose your own topic so it lets the students learn about what they want to learn about and it's not like you have to learn about this specific thing because that's kind of boring in my opinion <laughs> all right all right cool cool thanks so much and and uh do you know where you finished in your grade level we have no idea well, did you guys even know that you were eyes are finalists no, not until my teacher contacted us. Oh, okay. okay. And we're like, oh, cool. <laughs> I like checked my phone and I have a bunch of texts from my parents and they're like, oh, congratulations. And I was so confused. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Any Anybody you want to thank? Thanks to Emma's social studies teacher, Ms. Kajiwara. Yeah, thanks to Ms. Kajiwara for like introducing us to this competition. I haven't really talked to her, but. <laughs> Good teacher. Yes. All right. She's a really good teacher. All right. Right on. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Emma Forges and Brenna Colmenares, two eighth graders from Highlands Intermediate School who were recent finalists in NPR's 2023 Student Podcast Challenge. They were talking to HPR's Russell Subiano. We'll have a link to their full podcast on the conversation page of our website later today. That does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we hope to learn more about what a walkout by actors, members of the SAG After Union, could mean for Hawaii's productions. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Stitcher. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.